In today's episode, we continue with Mark chapter 14. We're going to be looking at verses 26 through 51. And our passage for this morning depicts the poignant moments leading up to Jesus' betrayal and arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. Overwhelmed with sorrow, Jesus wrestles with the weight of his impending sacrifice while his disciples struggle to stay awake. Later, Judas arrives, signaling Jesus' arrest with a kiss. Good morning and blessed Pentecost, and also happy Thanksgiving Eve. Today is Wednesday, November 22nd, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the Holy Scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. You can learn more about their translating and publishing work on their website at lhfmissions.org. This morning, we're live, so feel free to call in with your comments or questions to 800-730-2727, or you can email them to me at pastorboo at gmail.com. I monitor that during the show. I also take a look at my Facebook messages, so if you want to send me a message through Facebook, I'll try to get your question or your comment out on the air. Right now, we welcome back to the program the Reverend Philip Fishaber, pastor of Holy Trinity Lutheran Church in Walnut, Illinois. Good morning, Pastor Fishaber. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. Good morning. Great to be with you. Well, our text for today, we're really getting down to the well, you know the main thing of Mark's uh, letter. We're getting down to the uh, death and resurrection of Jesus. Today's section is an important part of that Passion Week, so I'm happy to have you here to discuss it with us. Um, how are things going for you? Boy, I cannot believe it's already Thanksgiving Eve. They are going well. We had a wonderful Reformation service at our school celebrating 40 years of classes there, and I am almost done with the semester teaching Hebrew at Concordia University, Chicago. Excellent. Wow. Do you have a Thanksgiving Eve service tonight? I do. All right. Well, so I do too. So. <laughs> yeah. So I tell you what, why don't we dive into the text then? And uh, that way we can get on with our day and get ready for our evening services tonight. Those of you who are able to go out to worship tonight, it's a good way to start off the Thanksgiving season or the holiday season by giving thanks to the Lord either today or tomorrow. Of course, you could do that every day and you should. But before we get into our text, brother, would you go ahead and start us off with prayer? All right. Lord God, Heavenly Father, as your Son came to you in prayer in his hour of anguish, help us to ever turn to you in all our needs, to accept your gracious will for us, whatever that may be. All this we ask in the name of your Son, Christ Jesus our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Ghost, ever one God, world without end. Amen. Amen. Well, before we read anything from our text appointed for today, I think it's a good idea to catch people up. So, Pastor, if you will, just let us know what's been going on in the moments leading up to our text for today. Well, we are now in the Passion account. It is Monday, Thursday. We have had the disciples eating the Passover meal. Jesus has taught them, and most importantly, just instituted the Lord's Supper, all in preparation for his betrayal, arrest, and death. And then, of course, on Sunday morning, the resurrection. 
we ended our text yesterday with Jesus's words, truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And of course, you know, this is the only occasion in Mark's gospel where Jesus speaks of being in the kingdom of God, at least explicitly. Is this a reference to heaven following Jesus's ascension or the arrival of the kingdom of God um, following Jesus's resurrection? Or is it Jesus ushering in the kingdom of God merely by his his, uh, crucifixion? You know, maybe all three, all of them. But today, though, we move to what happens next with verse 26. We're going to see that they are uh, getting ready to sing and finish up their service. I'm going to go ahead and read those verses through verse 31. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Now Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. So they're getting ready to go up to Gethsemane, but before we follow them there, let's talk a little bit about what just happened. So they sing a hymn, and now they're heading out to the Mount of Olives, and, well, Jesus is pretty direct. He says, every one of you is going to fall away because of what's going to happen next. Take us through this, Pastor. This is a, must have been tough to hear this from, from the words of your rabbi. Certainly. We get most of Jesus' teaching on Monday, Thursday in John's Gospel, where we really see a strong emphasis on Jesus preparing them for what's about to happen, so that when he rises and comes to them, they receive him with joy. And this is part of that telling them, you're going to stumble as it has already been said in scriptures. But, he tells them there's hope at the end. After I'm raised up, I will go before you into Galilee. He's telling them that even though they're all going to fail this night, and fail spectacularly, he's still going to come back to them in forgiveness and make it right. Well, you know, I, I guess that does certainly offer some comfort, but I got to tell you, I, I feel like if I were on the ground in that moment, I would, I don't know. I mean, I feel like it'd be a little bit more like Peter because, you know, and I'm not saying that Peter was right. In fact, we know that he was wrong. Jesus was right. But I would feel like, you know, Jesus, look at all that we've been through. And I know we have a lot to learn, but are you saying that I'm just going to fall away from you? I couldn't imagine that. It would be like someone saying, you know, Pastor Fishaber, you know, I know that 10 years from now, you're going to have given up the ministry. You're going to have given up Lutheranism. You're not going to be a pastor anymore. You would say, no, there's no way that could happen. So I, I kind of, I guess I empathize a little bit with Peter because that would be just as drastic for his, his rabbi to tell him, 
you guys are all going to walk away from me. And, and of course, Peter says, no, even though they might, which isn't very nice, but he still says, I, I won't. Of course, we know how that turns out. But yeah, that's pretty, pretty harsh, harsh uh, rules. Um, Peter, by the way, of course, I, go ahead. Peter is, of course, wrong, but we should all have his conviction. No matter what happens, I absolutely will not fall away. Right. That should be our conviction, though we should also, as Scripture tells us, take heed lest we fall. Because as Peter and the other disciples show, none of us are exempt from the dangers that come through sin. Well, of course, and, and in many ways, Peter is demonstrating this conviction that we should all have. Um, it's going to kind of come to a head later. We see Jesus in some ways experiences the same thing. Peter is saying, essentially, the spirit is willing. Uh, he doesn't know that his flesh is weak just yet, but his spirit is willing. I'm ready to die with you, Jesus. But of course, when, it, when push comes to shove, his reason his flesh, it's going to be weak. But at the same time, you know, we see this language of striking the shepherd. Now that comes from Zechariah 13. Um, verse. I'll read the, just verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares Yahweh of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. So there is this prophecy of of judgment um, from all the way back in Zechariah, and this is what Jesus is quoting. Uh, why is it that Jesus quotes this in this moment? Is it just because of the circumstances, or more likely, is there some deeper connection here? I mean, this is certainly a prophecy of Jesus' passion, and by foretelling them what's going to happen, he is giving them a very difficult word to hear, as you said. But he is telling them ultimately that even though all of this happens, it's going to be okay. This is paired with verse 28 of Mark's gospel, but after I am raised up, I will go before you into Galilee. Zechariah doesn't give us that part. He goes on in the rest of chapter 13 to talk about the fierce judgment of God. Though ultimately at the very end, he does say that they will call upon the name of the Lord. So there but it is seems certainly... like they're... It seems like when we look back on it, it's easy for us to point out, of course, verse 28. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. In the moment, though, they're sure not – they're not acting like – or at least Peter's not acting like he understands that phrase at all. You know, you will all fall away. I'll strike the – you know, the, it's, it's written in Zechariah. I will strike the shepherd. The sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter just focuses on the fact that he's not going to fall away. It's yes, it's a conviction, but it's also a little bit of an arrogance because he's missing the point that Jesus literally just said, after I am raised up. And yet they seem so surprised when Jesus dies as if he hadn't told them here and hinted at elsewhere that he's going to be raised up. 
I just think that's kind of uh, kind of something that we should illustrate how how easy it is to miss the good news when you're focused so much on your own, I guess, your own hangups. Certainly, and all four Gospels make clear that they didn't understand what Jesus told them until after the resurrection. That really exactly. is the key point in all of world history. Suddenly, it all makes sense. And so looking back from this side, as you said, it's very easy to see verse 28 and that it does all work out. But until then, no one gets what's happening when Jesus tells them. Well, let's move into the next section, because likely after dark, after the sun is well gone down and, and the other disciples are resting, and we, we find ourselves in verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. But he took with him Peter and James and John, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And then going a little further, he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Let's pause there for just a second. Now, those who have heard the story know that the disciples, they've fallen asleep. <laughs> but before we have Jesus catch them sleeping, let's talk a little bit about what Jesus is praying here. Now, we speak of Jesus willingly, gladly going to sacrifice himself for the sins of the world, yet his words betray that here a little bit. I mean, here's Jesus saying to the Father, I don't want to do this. If it's possible, let's not do this. And yes, we focus on yet not what I will, but what you will, and that's important. But I think we skip over the reality that Jesus the Christ is saying, I'm sorrowful and I don't want this to happen. Uh, talk a little bit about that. How do we reconcile that without just jumping straight to well, yeah, of course he's going to follow God's will or the Father's will. But I think we should really illustrate that there is this humanity of Jesus that's struggling with this. Certainly. It's clearest in John 10, Jesus says, I lay my life down, no one takes it from me. He is certainly willing to do what he must, but we see here, Jesus knows exactly what he's about to suffer. And that is far beyond anything we can imagine. He's not just being executed in the cruelest way possible, but he is bearing all the sins of the world in doing so and paying their punishment. We have some of those beautiful Lenten hymns that talk about the depth of his suffering. And that is exactly what Jesus sees right now. And he's saying, if there is any way to avoid this, please let me avoid this. 
So Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, which, by the way, is this olive grove near the foot of the Mount of Olives, and he was there a lot. We see that in John 18 and elsewhere. At least on two other occasions, Jesus also took aside Peter, James, and John while he left the other disciples behind. Uh, We actually see that in Mark 5, and we saw it in 9. But yes, you're right. You know, as Jesus is in this familiar place, a place of comfort, a place of prayer, a place where he has in the past connected to his father, we have him here, just like Hebrews 5 says, he's praying with loud cries and tears. He recognizes that the cup, the cup that he must drink, the same cup that he challenged his disciples who wanted to be in positions of power to drink, this is. Well, what Isaiah describes in chapter 51 as the cup of Yahweh's wrath, drunk to the dregs, the cup of staggering. Jeremiah has the same kind of language. Thus, Yahweh, the God of Israel, said to me, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath. So we have this idea of drinking the wrath of God. Well, he's calling to his father, Abba, Father, remove this cup from me. Um. How do we understand what God's wrath is? I mean, this is something that I think people think, well, God's mad at me. But no, wrath is something very specific. How might you describe wrath to people to help them understand that Yeah, even the Christ doesn't want to have to experience this? That's how bad it is. God is a holy and righteous God who cannot abide sin. Scripture is very clear and repeatedly tells us that. And it frequently describes his holiness as a burning fire. If you've ever touched a hot stove, it really, really hurts. And that is a frequent image of God's wrath, that that painful burning is how sin is received it is destroyed and consumed in his wrath because his holiness cannot abide it and just like the extreme pain from a burn so is god's judgment there is nothing more painful and fiercer than the wrath of god because it is holy and righteous. It is completely and totally deserved. Though, of course, Jesus does not deserve it, but is taking our place. But this truly is the fires of hell that consume for all eternity. And no one wants to bear that. That is the worst possible punishment that exists. And that is the fierceness of God's wrath that Jesus is taking here. And so he cries, Abba, Father, please, if you can, don't make me suffer that. We'll see on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God the Son is abandoned by God the Father and given over to the full force of that wrath. And that is a truly terrible thing, which 
Jesus certainly has a good reason to not want to suffer. You know, there's some interesting things that Jesus says here. He says, Abba, Father. The word Abba is just a, it's a Greek word. It's a transliteration of an uh, Aramaic word that means father. You know, you hear that a lot in general evangelicalism, the word Abba. It's only mentioned three times in the whole New Testament, though. Uh, Once here and twice in Paul's letters, Romans 8 and Galatians 4. But it shows this connection of intimacy between, of course, Jesus and his father. But his words, all things are possible for you. Now, that strikes me as interesting, not because it's not true. Of course, it's true. It's the words of Jesus. Elsewhere, Jesus has said, like in Matthew 19, 26, uh, he says, you know, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Let's talk a little bit about that. You know, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Um, Does this suggest that there was a possibility that God could, in another way, have reconciled the world? Because when we talk about the things that God can do and the things that God cannot do, there are things God cannot do. And it is not possible for God to say, lie, for God to break his promises, for God to not be eternal or omnipotent. You know, it, there, there are lots of things that are not possible for God, strictly speaking. So when, when Jesus says, all things are possible for you, remove this cup from me, um, help us understand why this is necessary, why it's necessary that Jesus suffer God's wrath, and why, in a way, it's not possible for it to be done any other way. We see this, especially in Romans, that Paul talks about how there is only one way to be reconciled to God, and that is through the Son. Certainly, God is omnipotent. He controls all things, but God cannot deny himself, as Scripture tells us. So he cannot deny his justice, he cannot deny his holiness, and say, sin doesn't matter, because it certainly does. But he can send his son to pay the penalty for sin, and that is the only way it can be, because none of us are good enough, no one in all of human history, besides God himself, is good enough to live that perfect life. And even if someone was, that would only be good enough for them. Only God can reconcile God to the world. And so even though all things are possible for God, he cannot deny himself and make an exception and say, oh, I'm going to overlook that sin. Justice demands that it be punished according to the strictness of the law. And Jesus is the only one who can take that punishment for someone else. I, uh, I feel like here that Jesus is genuinely speaking from his humanity. Uh, and sometimes we forget because we talk about Jesus being 100% God, 100% man, you know, these things are 
indivisibly connected to one another. It's, it's not like half and half. At the same time, Jesus is in his state of humiliation is really experiencing the sorrow that's coming from the impending judgment. I, I think this is a healthy reminder for us that even though Jesus is God, his death was not nothing. And even though he knew even ahead of this that he would be, uh, you know, take up his life again from the dead, that he would be resurrected, he still uh, sorrows over what has to be done. He sorrows over us. We should really remember that because when we think about Jesus out, say, in the desert being tempted by the devil, we think, well, of course, you know, he, he, he can resist those temptations. He's God. But no, he genuinely had to resist those temptations. Here, he genuinely is experiencing I'm going to say uh, fear. Is that the right word for for what's going to happen? But it doesn't mean that he's not willing. It's just part of his human nature because he has one is this idea of, you know, I I will do it. But boy, if there was another way, I I, I wish there was. Um, Now, isn't Jesus all isn't Jesus all knowing? Well, yes, but he's in his state of humiliation. How would you explain that? Well, if I can jump over to Luke, he tells us after this prayer in verses Luke twenty two forty three and 44, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. There is certainly fear, there is apprehension, But he is already suffering in great agony, so much that his sweat becomes blood, that he needs an angel to minister to him, precisely because he does know what's about to happen. And so he's crying out in his great pain and suffering, saying, Father, is there any other way? even though he knows that there is no other way and he does have to go forward with this. Well, I think that gives us some stuff to think about and ponder on. We're going to continue this narrative. When we get back from our break, Jesus is going to find that those disciples he brought with him, well, they're not as alert as he would want them to be. We'll we'll talk about that in a lot more. Folks, don't go anywhere. We'll see you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316.
Welcome back, friends. I'm Pastor Phil Boo, your host, and this is Thy Strong Word. And with me this morning is the Reverend Philip Fishaber. He's the pastor of Holy Trinity Lutheran Church in Walnut, Illinois. And we're talking the Gospel of Mark. We're in chapter 14. We're just at the point where Jesus is praying earnestly in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying that this cup of sorrow, this cup of wrath that he must endure, He's asking that it may be taken from him. Of course, he's willing to do his father's will, and we're going to keep on going. But before we head back into our text, I just want to remind you once again that feedback, questions, comments, they can all be directed to me at pastorboo at gmail.com. I always monitor that through the show. Also on Facebook, you can send me a message. You can even call into the studio if you'd really like, 800-730-2727. Any of these methods can get your question or your comment out on the air. But turning back to our text, brother, let's keep on going. I'm going to start with verse 37 and go through 42 and just let's see what happens next. And Jesus came and he found his disciples sleeping. And he said to his, uh, said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words, and again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough, the hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately while they were still speaking, Judas came. Well, that's the next section, so... Just looking at this second part of the narrative in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is praying, Abba, Father, if, if, if it's possible, take this cup from me, but not as I will, but what you will. Then he goes back and he finds his inner circle, so to speak, sleeping on the job. Could you not watch one hour? Why is this significant? Why is Jesus so upset that they're sleeping? This is... The hour of his great suffering, he has told them what's happening. And so they ought to be praying while he's praying that they wouldn't fall away, that they would endure that perhaps what Jesus predicted would not happen might have been a natural response. So, of course, we very much want what Jesus predicted to happen to come about because it was ultimately for our good. But they know how important this is. Jesus has told them this throughout the night, and yet here they are unable to keep watch for even one hour with him despite all the important things he's told them are going to happen this night and in the coming days. And I'd like so, to think that Jesus is also teaching them a broader message too. And, you know, he's out there. And I guess what I want to ask you is, do you think that when Jesus says, remove this cup from me, does the, is that tantamount to temptation on his part, that he's being tempted? Do you see him being tempted here? And that then therefore connects to him going to them and saying, you know, here we have even the Christ is tempted, and here you guys are just sort of sleeping at the most important hour. The hour has come, the hour you've all been waiting for. 
And, uh, you know, so he, that's why he brings up temptation. Do you see that as temptation? It's certainly there in the background, how active it is. We're not told, but when he's arrested, one of the other gospels tell us that Jesus says, look, I could have legions of angels right here if I wanted to defend myself. But he goes anyways. So Jesus is certainly aware that if he says no, this isn't going to happen. So in that sense, the temptation of that knowledge is certainly there, though Jesus is firm in his resolve not what I will, but what you will. Recently, we heard from St. Peter, who said, The end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. You know, Jesus is self-controlled. He acknowledges the potential temptation. He acknowledges his struggles, his human struggles with, the, with what's about to happen. But at the same time, he's very sober-minded and he's connected to the will of God. Here it, it appears that he's trying to give this same teaching to Simon and and the rest of them. You know, stay alert, be awake, not just like literally don't be sleeping, but be sober minded for the sake of the of your prayers, as Peter says, but for the sake of the mission. You know, you guys, this isn't the time just to sort of lay around, but I don't think he's meaning just in that hour. And he certainly isn't meaning that we should never sleep as Christians. But there is this watchfulness, this um, wokeness, to use the term uh, that's been hijacked lately. But but to, there is this alertness to being a Christian. And so that's why I see these words going beyond just, can't you guys stay awake while I'm in my worst moments? It's also more of a, this is going to be your life now. You're going to be constantly on guard, waiting for the end and being sober-minded for the sake of the mission. Do you see it that way too? Certainly, this is the theme of the end of the church year. I guess you had it on the three year a couple weeks ago. We've had it this coming week and the past couple weeks talking about stay awake, be watchful, for God will come back like a thief in the night at an hour when you do not know. So we always have to be ready. Lest, like the five foolish virgins, we are found unprepared and the door is shut before we enter in. One of the things that I think is interesting as we look at this whole situation, you know, Peter is the one who has been told in no uncertain terms that he will actually deny Christ. He's, and then yet we move into this after Peter's passionate, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And within the same couple hours, he's just sort of sleeping on the job. I don't think that that's – it's being presented to us here from Mark on purpose. It's to show us just this concept of you know the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Simon's ready to, it's ready to die for Jesus except – yeah, look, you can't even stay awake for Jesus. It's like all those people who said, you know, I can't, I cannot wait. I cannot wait to be with God in heaven, but they don't, aren't that interested in showing up to church here where he meets us today. 
so I, I, I really do see a connection between Jesus's own struggles between the weakness of the flesh and the strength of the spirit. And that, that same thing is happening with Peter, too. Now, I don't know if it matters, but we do know that Mark and Matthew set the prediction of Peter's denial on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, while Luke sets it at the Last Supper. I, all that period of time, I'm sure, um, kind of over overlaps each other. Uh, but the, the point is, though, uh, we see here that his, his spirit is, well, I say his flesh is, is, is weak. And we see that not only in Jesus, but also in Peter. But but Jesus' warning, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Yet Jesus knows that the, the, the hour has come, and here they are sleeping on the job. Three times he goes to them. Um, when Jesus says, rise, let's be going, he doesn't mean, or I guess I should phrase it in the in, in a question, um, does he mean that, hey, let's flee because here comes my betrayer, or as as is obvious, is he talking about the fact that he's got to make his stand now? Now's the time to endure what the Father has prepared for him to endure. Definitely the second. He is not <laughs> going away. Rise, let us be going directly to the purpose for which I have come to this hour, to use the language he uses in John's Gospel. Jesus is saying, it's go time. You know, I, I just had a listener write in that makes a very good point. He, he talks about the connection between Jesus's prayer in Gethsemane and, of course, how he taught us to pray the what we call the Lord's Prayer. That whole concept of not what I will, but what you will be done. I, Jesus, I think in his experience of of I don't want to say doubting the father's will. That's not what he's doing in his experience of challenging. Like, you know, I, I am not happy about what's about to happen. I, I I'm, I'm dreading it. It is not a good thing to drink of the cup of the wrath of the father. Um, but he's also experiencing what we all experience so that we can have a high priest who is not unsympathetic with our weaknesses. So when we think things like, you know, we want to put our will over God's, we can look at Jesus here in the garden and say, look, Jesus endured this too. And so I not only received the benefits of his perfect obedience, but he also is setting an example for me to acknowledge that there are times when God's will leads us on a path that is unpleasant. But that doesn't mean that we should override his will with our own desires. Uh, at least that's how I think our guest, I mean, our listener sees it, but that's certainly how I see it. That is very well put. Jesus came and is not telling us to go do something new and strange, but rather to follow the path he has trod. And part of his path was suffering when the will of the Father was most certainly not the kind of thing we want to endure. And because he promises to always be with us, and to never leave us or forsake us, that should be a great comfort that our suffering is not strange to him, but he has done it before and he remains with us even when the will of God is not what we would like it to be. 
Yeah, and thank you to Ryan listening with his family in Georgia for that connection. I didn't even think about the Lord's Prayer. I, I, I can't believe I didn't think about it because it really does connect so well. That's why I love it when you listeners write in. I, I hey, it helps out the show. But let's look, continue to look into this text. So are you still sleeping, taking your rest? The hour has come. Now, even that phrase is incredibly significant because how often had we heard up to this point, Jesus saying things like, my hour has not yet come, but here it is. Here's the hour that's come. But wait a minute. The Old Testament, when it speaks about the hour of the Lord or the day of the Lord, it's talking about judgment day. So is there a connection between what's going on right now and judgment day? I, I would have to say there is. What is that connection? G the connection is that Jesus is taking our judgment he is suffering in our place, but also, as he makes clear in John 12, he says, not speaking of the hour of his crucifixion, now is the judgment of this world. Now is the ruler of this world cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He has come for the purpose of defeating Satan, of delivering us from his domain so that we can be drawn to God and live with him forever. So Jesus tells us outright, this is the hour of the judgment of the world, even though it is not that final judgment day when Christ returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. Well, let's move on to what happens next because Actually, I'm going to go back a verse just, the, just so I can preserve the way Mark tells it. Verse 42, Jesus says, Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priest and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. All right, we're going to pause there. We still have two more verses in our text for this morning, but pausing there. So immediately, while Jesus is saying, my betrayer is at hand, here pops out the betrayer, Judas, who then Mark describes, or, or I guess refers to as the betrayer. That's, that's pretty rough. But he comes... Here's what has always confused me from the very moment I was little. Maybe you can help shed some light on it. I have some better ideas now, but when I was growing up, I never understood this and still think it's a little weird. Here he comes, and with him, the scriptures say, is a crowd. Chief priests, elders, scribes, they have clubs, they have soldiers with them, clubs, swords, and he does the whole pretense of going up to Jesus and kissing him. Why doesn't he just say, that's him, or better yet, if these people know who Jesus is and he's so wanted and well-known that, uh, that they're coming to arrest him, why don't they know who he is? 
What's the deal with the kiss part, I guess, is what I'm trying to ask. Why the kiss? Well, first off, just on a practical level, it's dark out. This is late in the night because Jesus has been praying for multiple hours. So with torches, a big crowd in the dark, you want to make sure you get the right person. So it makes sense for the betrayer mm -hmm, to say, this specifically is the one. But now turning to what I think you really want to get at here, the Greek word here, phileseo, or phileso, is from the word for friendship. Judas is not just saying, hey, this is the guy. He is coming up and greeting him as a friend, even though he's betraying him. So this really adds to the drama and to the depth of the betrayal. He not merely turns in his friend, his rabbi, he comes up and the sign he uses is greeting Jesus as a friend. What more poignant betrayal could he have than that? I, I do think and I agree with you that the, the simple logistics of it is what helps explain it. You know, Judas shows up and, you know, you don't want to arrest the wrong guy. And, and frankly, you know, folks during this time, they're all going to have beards. They're all going to have the same style of clothing. It's going to be a little tarred. So I, I agree with that for sure. Judas comes up and the, the sense of irony is thick. You know, if it were fiction, it makes perfect sense to make this guy giving him the kiss so that it's extra dramatic when we realize that he's the betrayer. And of course, Jesus knows this the whole time. And frankly, from the scriptures, we know that Judas already knows that Jesus knows. He made it clear in the Lord's Supper. Uh, in other parts of the Bible, in other gospels, we're told that Jesus basically tells him, go do what you got to do. Uh, so unless he's really dull and thinks that Jesus doesn't know these things, I would assume that even Judas knows. It almost seems that the kiss, even beyond the irony of it, which is thick, or the logistics of it, which also help it make sense, I think it just kind of demonstrates the depravity of Judas. I, I mean, it just – he could have pointed out. He could have went and said, the guy I put my hand on his shoulder. He could have said, the guy who is the guy who is Jesus because you know him. He's been in the temple with you. Or he could have said, the guy who everybody's looking at. You know which one he is. But instead, he it's almost like – he wants Jesus to know that it was him. Now, that's a lot of speculation, but I, I think it does, if true, speak to perhaps Judas's, um, I, I, let's say, misled nature. I don't want to try to defend Judas, but we also know that, as we talked about in other episodes, Satan has entered Judas. So there is a part of this where I think it is some vindictiveness. I think it's sort of like a you know, hey, look, 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 uh, uh, you know, I'm the one who's done it. I'm the one who brought them. I, I don't know. I didn't, do you have any thoughts about that? I think that Judas certainly can't greet him as a friend and intentionally choose that as the sign without meaning it. He is really sticking that proverbial knife in Jesus and twisting it as hard as possible with this sign. 
which of course we're told in the Old Testament, all my friends will betray me, my close companions stand aloof. And there are plenty of references to the fact that it will not be just enemies, but that close friend. And Judas is leaning as far into that as he can and really making his betrayal as personal and cruel as possible. I don't think there's any way around that understanding here. And Jesus makes an extremely good point <laughs> when he contests why they've come so heavenly ar- heavily armed. It's like they've come with the with the SWAT team to get somebody who has never demonstrated any sort of violent tendencies at all. Now, this is kind of a uh, obscure reference. Um, it's from my childhood, though. But and I know there are plenty more. But I remember. Um, Elion Gonzalez, this is kind of a, like I said, he, he was a, uh, a migrant boy brought in. They went to go get him and it was very famously everywhere. Janet Reno's FBI had gone in and they had basically pictures of SWAT teams with a gun pointed in this little kid's face. And it made the news and was a big, a big deal, of course, because people said they overreacted to what they were there to do. Now, since then, the militarization of police and other things has probably increased dramatically where it wouldn't even be a scandal. But back in 93, it was very much a scandal. That's the vision, the picture I get here. They all, Basically, all they had to do was tell Jesus to show up to court, so to speak, and he probably would have. But instead, they come out with the whole temple SWAT team to get him. And so he says, have you come out as if I were a robber? Do you have swords and clubs to capture me? What is even the point of that? Uh, he says, I was with you all the time. Why didn't you get me then? Of course, we know why. Because the people would have rebelled. They want to come at night, and they want to come with the swords and clubs. Well, I have my own thoughts, but but why do you think? Why are they coming out so heavily armed? What's the answer to Jesus's question here? Well, as he says, let the scriptures be fulfilled. This was foretold, but... I do think Jesus is making fun of them a little bit here. You've come out like this when I've been standing in the same place you hold court and you haven't touched me there. He's pointing out just how ridiculous their whole plot is. I think and, the I think the sort of almost mocking them is a, is also a good description because yeah I mean he I think that is a good tone I'm just processing that because this whole idea of you know what did you come out for with 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 all this firepower and yet you know I've never caused any trouble but at the same time you're right the scriptures do talk about the fact that he will be betrayed oh, we have things like even in psalm 88 you have caused my companions to shun me you have made me a horror to them i am shut in so that i cannot escape uh verse 18 you have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me my companions have become my darkness uh, this hour uh, has come john 16 indeed it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home so the fact that people are turning against him, even violently against him, is something that Jesus experienced. And one thing we can connect that to today is that we should not be surprised when people overreact to the message of God, the message of Christ, because I think that's just 
the human nature, the human reaction to God, the fallen human reaction to God. Um, keeping on going, though, because we just have a couple minutes left, I'm going to read the last two verses of our section. 51 says, And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. <laughs> and that's where we're going to end our text for this morning. Uh, on Monday when we come back, we'll keep on going with Jesus going before the council but it has always been my understanding that while we do not know who this young man is, we suspect it might be Mark. Do you want to talk a little bit about 51 and 52 before we close up? Sure. So, yeah, it's been tradition that this is Mark because he would have been a young man at this point. It makes sense since he's the only gospel writer who mentions this that he's pointing out that he was there too because this certain young man john always talks about the disciple whom jesus loved instead of saying his name so there's been a tradition that mark is doing the same thing here and that he was trailing along he was kind of sort of being part of the crowd following the good crowd following jesus even though he wasn't one of the 12, and then he runs away like the rest of the disciples. Whether that's accurate or not, we'll find out in heaven. <laughs> but right. I do think it's interesting to note here the word for young man, kind of like when the Old Testament talks about David's mighty men, this word is used for a valiant young man. In the Greek Old Testament and in Jewish Greek sources. So this is not just some kid. This is someone who should be strong and brave is also running away in the most embarrassing way possible. Sure. Oh, yeah. You know, some commentators have tried to figure out why he would be dressed so, let's say, casually. <laughs> One commentator says that perhaps the upper room where Jesus and his disciples had been was at Mark's mother's house, Mary, uh, where they were accustomed to gather. That could be true. We talked about how he probably had arranged all of this in advance and he was not a stranger to this area. And that perhaps he just quickly grabbed a linen cloth to cover himself and followed Jesus out to uh Gethsemane. So maybe, you know, when they were all leaving, as you said, he wasn't a part of the proper 12. He just grabs something, throws it on, and, and follows after them. Um, I also think that it aids in, let's say, the uh, veracity of him. Like if people are saying, well, where did you get this? Well, just saying the Holy Spirit inspired you is probably not very convincing. So he says, just like Luke does elsewhere, you know, I was there, I saw it, or I researched it. In this case, I was there, I was a witness. But then he demonstrates his witness with details that, you know, if it weren't true, you wouldn't want to say. Let's put it that way. So it kind of <laughs> helps the veracity of his argument a little bit. But then I thought, I think your your idea is, is very valid too, that he's a young man. The word there, oh, I don't, I can't pronounce it, Neaniskos. Um, that refers to like this, as you were saying, from the Septuagint, this valiant young man. In Greek, it referred to someone who was above the age of puberty but not married yet. Anyway, young man couldn't even stick around for Jesus. Well, that's where we're going to have to leave it. Unfortunately, we can't stick around anymore either because we're at the end of our show. 
But I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend uh, Philip Fishaber, pastor of Holy Trinity Lutheran Church in Walnut, Illinois. Thanks, Pastor, for being on the show. Great to be with you. And folks, tomorrow is Thanksgiving, so happy Thanksgiving early. Uh, tomorrow and Friday, Thy Strong Word will be presenting an encore episode on both both days of our study of Jonah from back in October. So we cover all four chapters of Jonah across the two episodes. Hey, it's a good way to take a break from Thanksgiving festivities. If maybe, you know, maybe family's becoming a little too much, you want to be fed with the Word of God because you're already full of turkey, that's okay. Take a break. Listen to Jonah. Um, Otherwise, when we come back on Monday, we're going to finish up Mark 14. And in that final part, it's going to be the tumultuous night of Jesus as he goes on trial before the religious leaders. So don't miss it. Well, until then, folks, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray. Father, keep us in thy strong word.